Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we're continuing our series, Make It Count, with a message titled, Promises While in Pain. So turn to your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 13, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Some of you remember a very famous painting by Leslie Thrasher. In it, it's a Thanksgiving picture. He depicts a woman buying a Thanksgiving turkey at a butcher shop. The turkey's lying on the scales, and the butcher is standing behind the counter. You know, at first glance, the picture looks like, you know, one of those Norman Rockwell paintings, but this one isn't. But you notice in the painting the hands of both the woman and the butcher. The butcher is pressing down on the scales with his finger, while on the other side of the counter, the woman is pushing up on the scale with her finger. You know, we live in a world scarred and marred by sin, a world of tragedy and death, to be sure. It's a world of injustice, of evil done against others, of hatred and wars and false imprisonments and, of course, disease. And as we all know, eventually death comes to all. There's so much that's pushing down on the scale, adding weight to already difficult lives. But we also know that in a world of sin, we find examples of grace, of goodness, of kindness, of mercy. And if we have eyes to see it, reasons to give thanks and to be truly grateful, so much is also pushing up on the scales. I want to today continue our study in 2 Timothy and and look again at that deeply joyful man named Paul, sitting in a darkened dungeon awaiting his own execution. And yet, as we have already seen, this letter is not the letter of a man who's falling into despair or a man who's shaking his fist, either at an unjust Roman system and emperor, or even as some in our world do today, shaking his fist at God. Second Timothy, after Paul writes his greeting and then begins the body of this letter, you know, he begins with three important words that do give the flavor of the entire book. And those three words are, I thank God. (laughs) This is a book that sees that the ultimate one, God himself, has put his fingers on the scale, pushing up. There's cause for joy. Well, very well. Let's read today's text, and it's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 13. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, has preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy for If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I can't help but notice the text that we're examining today begins with the word, remember. You know, in many ways, the book of 2 Timothy is all about the the memories that Paul has. He remembers his ancestors that were faithful to God. He remembers Timothy and Timothy's mother and grandmother and how their authentic faith inspired Timothy to believe. And he remembers Timothy's sincere faith and Timothy's loyalty to him. And even Timothy's tears when they last said goodbye to each other, knowing it might well be the last time that they would see each other on this earth. These were all reasons for which Paul gives thanks to God. He's overwhelmed with memories and memories that deeply encourage him. But now in the middle of chapter 2, it seems like his reasons for thanks reaches a climax when, you know, in his dreary and darkened prison cell, 
a cell calculated to strip him of all hope and joy. You know, here in chapter 2, verse 8, in a moment of triumph and great joy, he shouts, Remember Jesus Christ! And from this passage, I want us to learn three reasons for thanksgiving about living in a fallen world. And the first is that Paul is thankful for the decisive victory of Jesus Christ. You know, I can't help but notice here that normally in the pastoral epistles, that is in First and Second Timothy and Titus, that Paul almost exclusively says, Christ Jesus, and yet here he reverses the order and says, Jesus Christ. And I think there's a reason for that. See, when he says Christ Jesus, he wants to point out that Jesus' title, the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of God, is the focus. But here in verse 8, he wants to put it second and emphasizes, first of all, Jesus' humanity. So when he says, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, he wants to put emphasis on how Jesus faced as true man, the terror of opposition by sinful men, and then was eventually nailed to the cross. And what then was the outcome? Well, it was an empty tomb. It was the smashing of death's authority. It was triumph over the grave and the hope of anyone who trusts in him. So how's Paul thankful? Well, he's thankful by remembering the decisive victory of Jesus Christ who defeated death and who rules over all. And that's for all of us. You know, if you're alone or you feel stressed or you're deeply discouraged, would you remember Jesus Christ, remembering that it was he that faced the cross, but the cross was not the end? but the most decisive victory in human history. And if you believe in him, and if your life is bound up in him, then is it not the case that the only thing your hardship can bring you is to share in his reward? So let's review. Paul is thankful. He's profoundly grateful for Jesus. But Paul's also thankful for the final victory that awaits him. The fact that Paul wrote half of our New Testament, you know, the fact that he was the most productive church planter in the ancient world, And the fact that his pioneering work brought the good news of Jesus to the Gentiles, you know, it's something that should not be lost on us. Please notice how Paul expresses himself at the end of verse 8. He says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. And when he says, my gospel, he's not suggesting that this is something that he made up or that he changed the message of Jesus and made it into the gospel of Paul you know, quite the contrary. He expresses himself very plainly about this matter in Ephesians chapter 3. He says, you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. That's in Ephesians 3, 2, and 3. You know, in other words, some unique aspect of the gospel of Jesus was made uniquely known to Paul. And what was that? Well, he expresses himself a few lines later in that same passage in chapter 3, verse 6. He says, The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. See, in other words, Paul has been given by revelation a unique aspect of the good news. You know, without his unique contribution, we, that is, those of us who are Gentiles, that is, we're believing non-Jews, We've been invited into the hope of Israel through Jesus Christ. And were it not for Paul, I wouldn't have been invited into the message of salvation. But that's only the beginning of Paul's reason for gratefulness. Look, verse 9, he says, For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. And did you notice how Paul adds his sufferings to the preaching of the gospel? 
even though he has suffered much before from the choice of his wording, many Bible teachers believe he's making plain that this last imprisonment was more brutal and more demanding than any imprisonment or suffering that he had undergone up till this point. And the idea behind verse 9 is that Paul knows that the reason for the brutality is to silence him and others from preaching the word. But the word can't be silenced. It can't be bound. You know, I'm reminded here of a painting that's hung in the city of Erfurt, Germany. And the painting shows a picture of a young Martin Luther. And he's poring over a copy of scripture in the morning light. And a broken chain hangs from the Bible. It's a wonderful picture. And for those of you who know history, that picture tells an amazing story. See, the Roman Catholic Church had made it illegal for the lay person to have or to read or to study the Bible. You had to have permission from the church to do study. But this young man, Luther, had received permission. And in time, he would translate that very same Bible into the German language, the language of the people of the nation, rather than simply leaving it in Latin. And the chains that had been placed on that Bible were now being broken by this translation. And that was the conviction that Luther brought. The Bible was for everyone. You know, that's exactly what the Bible itself, God's word promises. Isaiah 55 verse 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to be empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. You can no more bind God's word than you can prevent the tide from coming in. The same God who spoke and the world came to be is the God who speaks today. And he cannot be bound. And that's why Paul had courage to suffer for the word and for the gospel. It was God's word to us because Paul knew that the gospel that he shared, or as he says, my gospel can't be bound. As time speeds by, it's even more important that we consider how we live. That's why I'm so grateful for friends like you who walk with us verse by verse through the Bible. The encouragement we received recently from Ruth reminds us of how precious this is. Dr. John's teachings are fascinating and really bring the Bible to life for me. I can almost visualize the scenes in my mind like watching a movie when I listen to him. I usually listen to the radio program at work and end up going home and rereading the passage he spoke about that day. And every time, I see it through different eyes. What a great way to use the time we've been given. With minds transformed by the washing of God's Word, we're given different eyes and God's own heart to see the world we live in. If you'd like to support the ministries of Back to the Bible Canada, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at one 800 663 2425. Let's look now at verse 10. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. And here we see the use of the word elect in referring to believers. And that term elect always refers to those people whom God has elected to be his own from eternity past. And the New Testament speaks that way. I mean, consider Acts 13, 48. 
It says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. You know, I know a number of us, you know, who want it to be the other way around, that as many as believed were appointed to eternal life, but that's not how the Bible states it. Those to whom God had appointed to eternal life believed, and therefore they are his elect. Consider, for instance, what Jesus said in John 6, 37. All that the Father gives will come to me. And notice the sequence. First, the Father gives to the Son a group of men and women. Then in consequence of that gift, all that the Father gives end up coming to Jesus. Now, I could go on and on, but please notice that in this thought of the Father's election, here is Paul's confidence. The Word of God cannot be bound, and those appointed to eternal life will believe. Wait a minute. Some of us will say, well, Paul, if you had not insisted in preaching so boldly, well, you wouldn't be in jail waiting execution. And since the word can't be bound and since the elect can't be prevented from believing, why then, according to verse 10, do you insist on enduring all the things that you are enduring? Or to put it into terms we might understand more, if God gets his way no matter what, why not just sit back and watch him do that? Why all this effort? But please consider that Paul thought about this the other way around. If the word can't be bound, and if God will surely bring in his elect, then I should give myself unreservedly to preaching the gospel and paying the price, no matter how great that price becomes, because in this great venture of bringing the gospel to the world, at least that's how Paul reasoned, I can't fail. That's why he endured all things. I'm so thankful for Paul's vital victory. His fearlessness is the very means that God used to fulfill his purpose in bringing the gospel to us. So I've given reasons for thanks. First is the decisive victory of Jesus. Then secondly, you know, the vital victory attained through the apostle Paul in his preaching of the word and paying his price. And with that, we come to verses 11 to 13. And please notice that Paul begins with a phrase, the saying is trustworthy. And there are five times in the pastoral epistles, again, that's First and Second Timothy and Titus, in which Paul uses that same phrase, the saying is trustworthy. And if you're looking this sort of thing up, you're going to find it in First Timothy 1.15, and then in chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, and then Titus 2, verses 11 to 13, you know, and in this passage now. And in each of these instances, Paul is quoting something, either an early Christian confession or an early Christian hymn that believers had been taught to sing. And I think that verses 11 to 15 are in an early Christian hymn. And given that Paul quotes this while in prison, in a time when, you know, Christians were being put to death for their faith, it seems likely he's quoting an early Christian martyr hymn. That is, when Christians were led to their death by Roman authorities, they sang this song. And therefore, it seems quite possible that Paul himself, when led to his own execution, would have sung these very words. So this is even close to being right. We should examine with great eagerness what the early Christian martyrs sang. But before we look at the details, might I remark that from all the records that we have, the early Christians embraced martyrdom with such boldness and even joy that their execution was such a forceful witness that in their death they, they caused the gospel to progress like chopping off the head of a dandelion that has gone to seed, with each death of a Christian came many more converts to the faith. And the secret behind all of this was the fact 
that those who were being executed for their faith in Christ believed that Jesus had won the decisive victory, and so, in consequence, they didn't fear death, and that God's word couldn't be bound. And in short, they actually believed that the promises were true. And that brings us to our third reason for being thankful, doesn't it? Not only does the resurrection of Jesus remind us that Christ won the final victory, not only does the preaching of Paul remind us that the word of God is unstoppable, but we could also be thankful for the promises God makes for his people, and as Paul puts it, his elect. So let's look at the first line of the ancient martyr's hymn. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Now, if you're not careful, You'll think it should read, if we are caused to die with him, we will also live with him. But I think that's not it. Those being led to their death said, if we have, at a particular time in the past, died with him. This is the understanding of everyone who's been truly born again. See, to be converted to Christ is to have already died with Christ. We've already lost our rights and our lifestyle choices and our right to determine our own destiny. Indeed, we have already been crucified with Christ. We are dead men and women right now. Christ has killed us. and We're dead to this world, to the flesh, and to Satan's kingdom. So what harm can you do to dead men and women? The answer, nothing. And since we have died with Christ, we will also live with him. So as early Christians were being led to the death, they joyfully proclaimed they were already dead, and hence they live with Christ in his resurrection. Now the second line, if we endure, we will also reign with him. And one of the great doctrines of the Bible is the promise of the perseverance of the elect. And Jesus promised it in John 10, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And the same Jesus that promised that all the Father gave him would come to him, Well, he also promised that no one could take them from him. See, now to be fair and to accurately represent what the Bible says regarding this matter, you know, it's one of the defining marks of the elect is that they endure. Another way of saying is to say the mark of genuine faith is that genuine faith endures to the end, no matter what lies at the end. So then if the elect already have the assurance of believing and the assurance of rising to live with Christ, Why are they called upon to endure since enduring is a given? Well, the answer is enduring prepares us for our eternal assignment of learning to rule and reign with Christ. So how do I know that? Because that's how the ancient hymn went. Enduring leads to reigning. And when Christ prepares for us to reign with him, he prepares us well. He causes us to endure in preparation for reigning. So the next line, if we deny him, he also will deny us. And no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom. But even as they sang that, a solemn warning they had learned from Jesus, they also confidently sang the last verse. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And on this verse, you know, there are those who believe that the meaning means that if we're faithless, Christ will be faithful in keeping his promise to condemn those who abandon him. Now, I reject that interpretation for several reasons. You know, first, in every place in Paul's writings where he speaks of the faithfulness of God in Christ, Paul uses that attribute to give hope to believers. So we should read passage after passage in which, you know, the faithfulness of God results in salvation and forgiveness of sins and safety from temptation and protection from the evil one and growth into holiness and on and on the promises go. No, no. Faithfulness to God is always reason for confidence. It's never a reason for worry. And second, you know, pay attention to how the hymn reads. 
You know, in the last of the four lines, there's a surprising twist. Die with Christ, live forever. Endure with Christ, rule with him. Deny him, he denies you. It all follows naturally until the last verse, something new and unexpected happens. So it can't mean be faithless and God will be faithless to you. It means exactly the opposite. So as the early Christians went to martyrdom, none of them believed their lives had been without sin. Each of them knew there were times in which their lives had been faithless, in which they had brought dishonor on the holy name of Jesus. But they went to their death absolutely confident that their acceptance before Christ was based not on their performance, but on the faithfulness of God, who had promised salvation to all who had surrendered unto Christ. And that's the promise. God's finger, you see, is placed at the bottom of the scales, lifting it up. You have reason to be thankful. And for you who are struggling today, and you're suffering, and you're wondering if you can go through this, understand this. God will remain faithful. God is for you. Give thanks. Thanks for your message, John. Let me ask you, how do you think believers ought to respond or or take responsibility for sharing the good news with others? Now, of course, um, we all know that every single believer placed in a different place in life will have varying opportunities to share the good news with others. Um, But I'm going to say that, look, if you have uh, children, I mean, certainly that is the place where you begin. You want to train them in the faith. And in that way, you're sharing the good news with them and you're waiting for their heart to respond. Um, You know, people are either, you know, at a workplace where they work with others who don't know Christ. So there are natural relationships that get formed, maybe with family members, extended family. You know, others are perhaps in university or trade school. So it's in your naturally occurring relationships. But you've asked, I think, a wider question also, and that's the question of, you know, how can we be in fellowship with believers and be sharing the good news? And and I would say, when you're sharing the good news, don't think that you have to do it alone. I mean, introduce your non-Christian friends or loved ones to other believers that you know and love and, and allow more people to be involved in their lives Uh, You might invite them also to join you. I mean, if they won't come to church, maybe they will. But if they won't, maybe there's something else you can invite them to uh, in which other believers are involved. So there are so many ways, if we are faithful, to simply look around and say, Lord, how would you have me share the good news and then be involved in that? Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Make It Count, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. Each month, we send out a free monthly update email that provides unique ministry content that includes our 5 and 5 audio program. Five questions in five minutes in conversation with those intimately involved in the mission and vision of Back to the Bible Canada. The email also includes advanced resource offers, insight into current and future programming, and the ways that you can be involved. The ministry update email is available simply by subscribing online at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. 
In the ministry update email in February, expect to hear more information about our international ministries and the unique impact that is being made in the world with Back to the Bible Canada programs, resources, and conferences. For more information or to send your gift, visit backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425.